Hey, everyone. Just a quick note. This podcast was recorded over the weekend before the tragic shootings in Las Vegas on Sunday night. As always, it feels strange to discuss sports without acknowledging the larger events that are on everyone's minds. Our thoughts are, as always, with the victims and their families. Welcome to the Ringer MLB Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network. My name is Michael Bauman. I'm a staff writer at TheRinger.com, as is Ben Lindbergh. How you doing, Ben? Doing well. How are you? I'm doing okay. I'm not doing as well as Jorge Alfaro. As uh, this tidbit comes across the wire, courtesy of friends of the pod, Jarrett Seidler and Craig Goldstein of Baseball Prospectus. Uh, Jorge Alfaro will almost certainly end this season with fewer than 130 uh, career at bats, which will make him eligible for his record tying sixth appearance <laughs> on the baseball prospectus top 101 prospects list. So congratulations to soon to be late uh, Phillies manager Pete McCannon for mm. playing for ringing the absolute last drop of, of utility out of Cameron Rupp. And congratulations to my man. <laughs> I guess that's a good sign. At least it could be worse, right? It could be better. You could lose your rookie eligibility more quickly Mm -hmm. than that. But he started very young. I don't know how old he was the first time he started appearing on prospect lists, but I'm sure not even his late teens probably at that point. So that's how you end up on the list that many times. And at least it's a good sign that you have retained your promise that people haven't soured on you because there can be a prospect fatigue with some guys who've been prospects for years. And if they don't break out at a really young age, maybe you figure they're not going to, but he has managed to convince people for this amount of time that he's going to be a a really good player. So yeah, I think if there's a a type of player who's going to manage to stay on the list for that long, it's a, a toolsy but unpolished catcher yeah. who uh, who first right. appears on the, the list at, I think, age 18. Uh, mm-hmm. So congratulations to Jorge Alfaro. Made this yes. be the last time that he ends up on the top 101. And, you know, may there be mm-hmm. many all-star appearances ahead. And congratulations also to Clayton Kershaw, yes. who I think finished off, what, his fifth ERA crown, something like that. He had a start on Saturday. We talked about this on the show I was nervous because I love Clayton Kershaw's streak of lowering his career ERA with every successive season that he has pitched in the big leagues. Of course, he had a 4.26 ERA in his rookie year, and he has lowered that with every subsequent season. It was in some jeopardy this year because he entered the year with a 2.37 career ERA, so he had to best 2.37, which he has done for a number of years in a row now, but still a tall order for most pitchers. And he came into his final start of the season in Colorado, which is always risky. He only had the option to allow, I think it was four runs was the most he could allow in, say, a four-inning start and still lower his career ERA. He did it. He just barely did it. He he pitched four innings and allowed three earned runs. He ended up with a 2.31 ERA on the season, which was just low enough. He has lowered his career ERA from 2.37 to 2.36. So he has now lowered his career ERA in nine straight seasons, which is amazing. I think only one player has done it more following a rookie year, and not a whole lot of players have done this, and it's even more impressive because he wasn't starting from that mm-hmm. high a point. He was pretty good as a rookie, too. So this kept us in suspense up until his last start of the season, but he just barely yeah. pulled it off, and people are always astonished by this stat because... He's been so good for so long now that you wouldn't think he could keep lowering the bar. It's like a a limbo bar where he is now basically like touching the back of his head on the sand as he limbos under this bar. But he keeps doing it. What does he have to do in his 30s? I mean, this is something that I know you've talked about a lot is you don't make you don't make the Hall of Fame in your 20s. You make the Hall of Fame in your 30s. So he's going to turn turn 30 next spring. What does he have to do in his 30s to retire? I think. Just get to 10 years of big league service time is all he has to do to make the the Hall of Fame, I'm pretty sure. But um, right. you know, to, I think he's in the best pitcher ever discussion. If you, you know, there's that Bill yeah, James no, sliding I, I, scale of of Walter Johnson to Lefty Grove to Tom Seaver to, to Roger Clemens, like how much you, 
you know, or how much you think the quality of plays improved over over time just sort of determines what which one of those mm-hmm. of one of half a dozen guys is the best pitcher ever. Yeah, I think what you said about how you make the Hall of Fame in your 30s, I think that is true for a lot of players. But I think Clayton Kershaw is probably already there, yeah. right? I mean, no, like the rules it's, don't it's apply to Clayton you are, Kershaw. If there's anything that the last right. decade has taught us, it's that. Yeah, most guys, it's like how you age separates you from the pack with Kershaw. Not only did he debut at 20, so he got the full decade of the 20s, and this is his 10th major league season now. Not only that, but he has pitched, you know, essentially had the best start to a, a career ever for a pitcher or certainly in the, on the very short list of best starts ever. So at this point, his career numbers are already kind of hall worthy. And if he, you know, were to suffer a career ending injury next year or something, I think he would be in just on the basis of what he has done already. But yeah, as far as what he has to do to vault into that best of all time discussion that is just a question of of aging gracefully and not getting hurt and somewhat worrisome of course that he has now failed to reach that 200 inning threshold which he did reliably for several years leading up to the last couple years and he's had these back issues and that's some slight concern looking forward and wondering whether that's the kind of thing that will linger but on a per inning effectiveness basis there's not a whole lot to worry about. I think the the comp is sort of turn of the century Pedro Martinez and Pedro's last like real eye pop. You know, he was good well into his mid thirties, but I mean, he was done at 30, completely done at 37, essentially done around 34. And his last real eye popping Pedro season was uh, his second to last season in Boston at age 31. So Kershaw doesn't have to keep, you know, for, I don't think he has to keep going for more than another year or two to really pass Pedro and then just sort of slide into, into retirement. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And of course, he, I think to satisfy a lot of people, I was tweeting about how he had extended his record on Saturday night. And a lot of the responses I got to that were, oh, he's amazing. He's inhuman. He's the best ever. And then I got several, what, what is his playoff ERA? Has he lowered his playoff ERA? So as we're going to discuss later in this episode, I think to satisfy some doubters, he has to have a good postseason, but we're not in that camp of thinking that he has some mental block about October, even that he yeah. has really been responsible for some of the Dodgers' recent issues in October. So to spoil it, like I said, I was sorry. It would be nice if Kershaw got a ring to shut those people up. I, you know, I wonder if just getting shut up is too good for them. <laughs> right. And of course, you can talk about that with David Price, too, who we actually don't get into in the rest of this episode. But when we talk about postseason weapons and guys who could be big out of the bullpen price certainly fits into that conversation too since he has been dominant in a relief role in the few times that we've seen him and obviously with his starter he did this in his rookie year in the playoffs out of the bullpen that is something to watch too so we're transitioning into playoff mode now thank you to everyone who has listened along with us throughout this season but for the next month or so it is playoffs all the time And today we're going to do just sort of a a general scene setting episode, get you into the playoff mood. And as the month proceeds, we'll be breaking down individual games and decisions and series getting into the the gritty. So I am looking forward to it and we'll be attending some games too. So uh, it's going to be fun and we look forward to talking to you all throughout this month. So we will be back with more playoff previewing in just a minute. Today's episode is brought to you by SeatGeek, the smartest and easiest way to get tickets to every MLB game. With SeatGeek's seamless mobile experience, you can buy and sell tickets in just two taps. SeatGeek helps you find the best seats at the best prices, fully guaranteed. There's nothing quite like seeing the best plays of the year in person, and SeatGeek will get you closer to the action for a great value. I have the SeatGeek app on my phone. It's by far the easiest way I've found to shop for tickets. If you get the SeatGeek app too, you can be anywhere, and with just a few taps, instantly find seats. I don't even have to tell you now what you can find seats for. It's playoff time. If you want to go to some of these games, do not have a press pass. SeatGeek is your best bet. You can check day of, check in advance, find the cheapest and best seats at a game near you. And SeatGeek is designed to make your ticket buying experience easier than ever. It saves you time and money by searching multiple ticket sites to compare prices and find amazing deals. And to get you the most bang for your buck, SeatGeek grades every ticket based on value to help you immediately identify the best seats to fit your budget. 
Plus, every purchase is fully guaranteed, so you can shop for tickets on SeatGeek with confidence. And it doesn't end with sports. SeatGeek also has plenty of concert, comedy, and theater tickets available, too. Best of all, Ringer MLB show listeners get a $20 rebate off their first SeatGeek purchase. To get your $20 rebate on tickets, download the SeatGeek app, go to the settings tab and click add a promo code, and enter the promo code RINGERMLB. That's all one word. SeatGeek will send you $20 after you've made your first ticket purchase. So download the SeatGeek app and enter promo code RINGERMLB today. All right, so we are joined now by one of our colleagues, beloved, respected colleague, making his long overdue first appearance on the Ringer MLB show. He is the master of the fun fact. He has probably written more about baseball this season than I have. (laughs) Thank you for that. He is Zach Cram. Hi, Zach. How are you? Hello. Long time, first time. It's good to be here. (laughs) Yeah, thank you. Good to have you. So we're going to have kind of a wide ranging discussion here about postseason strategy in general, some specific teams and how they stack up. We'll talk about the wildcard games more specifically, but probably also allude to some of the other matchups at least. So I guess we can start just with the idea of the wildcard game being a separate beast from regular baseball games or even from non-wildcard playoff games. And this is something that there's a debate about every single year. There are two debates, really. One is, do we like this format? Are we happy with having single elimination games in baseball, a sport that doesn't really lend itself to single elimination games, at least being representative of team quality? So there's always a conversation about that. Do we need to tweak this format somehow to be more fair, to be more representative? And then there's also the separate discussion about whether you should adopt a different strategy, different tactics in this wildcard game as opposed to a longer series. So where do you, both of you, come down on these discussions? Are you both happy with the wild card as a format, as it's currently constructed? So the answer to that question for me depends on how uh, much we conflate the playoff champion with the best team in baseball, because, you know, it's not fair to to teams like, you know, with the Diamondbacks having such a big lead over the Rockies this year or the uh, uh, the Yankees having a big lead over the Twins. It's not really fair to those teams that those extra five or six games in the standings don't really mean anything. But at the same time, it generates, you know, incredible moments. Like I think the uh, before game seven of last year's World Series, I think the, the best playoff game of, of the 2010s was probably that uh, Royals uh, A's wildcard game mm-hmm. with all the stolen bases and, you know, discovering that John Lester can't <laughs> throw to first and yes. the, the double, you know, past, past Josh Donaldson. And so it's given us that focus that you go, you know, you'll go through an entire uh, an entire playoff run without getting to a winner take all game sometimes. And so there's, it's just less dramatic than as, as overwhelmingly intense as playoff baseball is from start to finish of his series. You don't get that winner take all moment that you do in football. And I think that that's you know, just as a, a TV attraction, it's, that's really one of two reasons why they, uh, why they instituted the second wild card was to make sure that there is appointment viewing at some point in in the the major league baseball playoffs, but also to incentivize winning the the division more. So I think it's cool as as somebody who watches baseball for entertainment, who you know is sort of takes a, a storyteller's approach to to baseball. It generates those moments. So you know I'm good with it as long as we don't pretend that that it is like the crucible through which the the best team reveals itself like the thing about having one game is that any team can win any game for any reason so more so in baseball than other other sports so as long as we make our peace with that then i'm good with it the way it is right yeah we'll we'll get into that lopsidedness in a minute because that's something zach's writing about this week for the site but where do you stand zach because i've i've heard all sorts of suggestions travis sachik former guest of ours wrote something at fangrass recently about how Maybe the Korea baseball organization has a good model for this with multiple games. And I've had suggestions from podcast listeners about ways you could make it more fair, even in a single game where maybe you take like the difference in the, you know, regular season records of the wildcard opponents and you add runs to one of the teams or you, you know, let them start a certain number of innings with a runner on first, depending on how much better they are during the regular season, that sort of thing. So do you have any thoughts on that on either P 
penalizing a weaker team more or just saying to hell with it, this is weird and fun and wonderful? Well, first, just to add to Michael's point, I think the wildcard games have really blessed us so far where besides maybe the game where Madison Bumgarner shut out the Pirates, pretty much every game has had a really memorable takeaway, whether it was the last year's game where Buck Showalter didn't pitch Zach Britton or the Orioles game, the Royals uh, athletics game that Michael mentioned, or Mm -hmm. even Johnny Cueto dropping the ball on the mound. Those have been some of the best games of the playoffs. And it's when everybody's watching, there aren't multiple games going on. Uh, I think the idea you talked about on your other podcast about starting ahead by a certain number of runs based Mm -hmm. on your place in the standings really appeals to me from sort of a game theory perspective Mm -hmm. on how that would shake out. And if the Yankees start up seven zero this year, they probably wouldn't need to pitch Luis Severino. (laughs) Right. But I think from a fairness perspective and from the idea that we want memorable moments, both from this game and the playoffs, the current situation kind of makes sense. And moreover, the idea of adding the second wild card was to make division titles mean more. Mm-hmm. And if the Yankees just sort of had a huge advantage or were able to waltz in to the division series this year, it would make the race with the Red Sox a lot less exciting. Yeah, I, I'm generally fine with the format the way it is. I think Michael mentioned it earlier. You have to draw a distinction between championship team and best team. If we were only interested in determining which was the best baseball team, you could end the season after September, and that would give us a, a better gauge than October alone does. But you have to just embrace the unpredictableness and unpredictability and randomness of postseason baseball and find that balance, I guess, where you feel like it's still representative of something and not purely random, but also has that suspense that you don't really get during a 162 game season where any individual game doesn't mean a whole lot. So, Zach, you just alluded to the idea that if you did have some kind of corrective measure in there that would give the Yankees an edge, they might not even have to start Severino. And there have been people who have suggested that maybe they don't have to start Severino as it is. And this is a take that we have all probably promulgated at some point. We've certainly heard it every single year. Whenever there is a winner-take-all game, whenever there's a single elimination wildcard game, someone suggests that Team X do a bullpen game and start one of their late-inning relievers and then fill in with more late-inning relievers, save Severino in this case so that he can make multiple starts in the division series. That's been a popular suggestion this year with the Yankees because they do have this incredible bullpen that they shored up in the second half. And so there's been the suggestion, well, start Chad Green and then bring in David Robertson and Batances and on and on. Canely, there's a long list of dominant relievers in that bullpen. You are not on board with the idea that the Yankees should have a bullpen game. Now, granted, they probably won't anyway. No one has ever really actually taken the internet up on this idea. I think probably because it's just a lot to ask of a team to do something completely different, to have pitchers do something in a different role than they've done before, even if Chad Green in this case has started. But why do you think that even on paper, this probably doesn't make sense for the Yankees? It's funny because in the past, I have been one of those people advocating that almost every year. Yeah. Uh, I I actually uh, play out of the park baseball and use that strategy myself. I've started playoff <laughs> games with Pedro Baez, and uh-huh. I'm thankful I didn't have to watch that. Yeah, but I <laughs> think that this year for you in fake baseball, <laughs> I've won. All I've right. won. So well, of course that would work in real life. Proof. But yeah. I think one of the yeah, main reasons, out of the park game yeah. takes nine minutes instead of five <laughs> because Pedro ba- Baez yes. is throwing three innings. <laughs> But I think it makes less sense for the Yankees this year for several reasons. One, Luis Severino is really good, uh, probably the third best pitcher in the American League this year. Uh, Nobody's talked about it as much because Mm -hmm. Chris Sale and Corey Kluber have just been head and shoulders above everyone else, but Severino's probably been the third best. And I also think that the Yankees' bullpen isn't quite as deep as they looked a month or two ago uh, when they made the trades for Robertson and Canley at the deadline. First, Dellen Betances, I don't know if Joe Girardi would trust mm-hmm. in a playoff game at this point. On uh, Friday night, the Yankees were still playing for the division title, and they were up 4-0 in the ninth inning. Betances came in, first two base runners reached, and Girardi actually pulled him. Mm-hmm. So I don't know how much uh, extension 
Betances would have at this point. And if you can't trust him, Tommy Kenley's also been a little questionable with the Yankees since coming over in July, then you're really limiting the options. So say Chad Green goes three innings, David Robertson goes two. Well, you still have four innings to go and Chapman can't pitch all those innings. It just narrows uh, the margin of error that the Yankees have. And as the favorite in this game already, I think they would be best suited to keep that margin of error as wide as possible. Even if Severino only pitches five innings and then you turn it over to Chad Green, sure, you don't have him for the first game of the ALDS, but in one game in a winner-take-all situation, I think you need to do whatever you can to advance to the next round, and pitching Severino is the best option they have to do that. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I'm i more sympathetic to this take than I would be otherwise, not only because Severino's been good, but like the like you said, that it's not that you know they can't really throw seven shutdown innings together. You know, it's it's the way they could maybe a year or two ago, even before they they made the trade for Robertson as good as he's been. And the other thing is like you look at the twins pitching, and if I were gonna try to get cute and save Severino for game one against Cleveland, I'd almost be more inclined to throw somebody like Sonny Gray out there uh in the wild card game, assuming the, you know, he was on proper rest and so on, just because, you know, I don't know who among the the twins pitchers I really trust. Like you could probably get to about even with Irvin Santana if you if you throw Gray out there. It's a situation where just playing conservative, playing to you you know you don't need to maximize variance in order to um, in order to get ahead the way the the twins might you know. And if the twins had anything near as as deep a bullpen as um, as the Yankees had, this would be an ideal situation for them. But yeah, this is probably a situation where the the Twins have one or two good starting pitchers, and you know Santana is an obvious choice to to pitch him, and you know the Yankees just probably don't need to get cute. Like if they lo- if Severino pitches and they lose, then you know nobody's going to second guess Joe Girardi. Not that that's a good enough reason to do something necessarily, but you know mm-hmm. I I certainly wouldn't fault him for going with his number one starter and getting beat. Yeah. So, Zach, you're writing about that for this week, that gap between the Yankees and Twins, between the Diamondbacks and Rockies. I assume you've looked at that in a historical sense. How does the lopsidedness of this year's wildcard matchups compare to previous years? Well, historical does have a bit of an asterisk because <laughs> yeah, this is only not a long the sixth game oh, right. of yeah, the in the StatCast era. era. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> But the Yankees, as things stand now, we're recording on uh, Sunday afternoon. They have the largest gap between the first and second place wildcard teams of any of those games. Uh, by pure win-loss record, the largest to date was the Braves, who are six games better than the Cardinals in 2012 in that uh, crazy infield fly, not infield fly game. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Diamondbacks and Rockies are in third place uh, with a five game separation. And actually, if you look at some of the underlying numbers, you know, a team's Pythagorean record, the gap widens even further. Yeah. The Yankees are something like 18 games better than the Twins by run differential. If you look even further at uh, baseball prospectus's third order record, they're 25 games better, mm-hmm. which is massive. Yeah. And that's because the Twins have sort of been an average team by a lot of underlying metrics, whereas the Yankees. Uh, their run differential suggests they might be the second best team in baseball. Mm-hmm. And the Di- the Diamondbacks and Rockies have a similar, not as wide gap between them, but they're also one of the, you know, furthest differentials of any game in the wildcard era. The most interesting part about this is that doesn't necessarily matter much. The example of the Braves and Cardinals, the Braves are a lot better, but the Cardinals still won that game. And uh, the other two wild card games with wide differentials by something like Pythagorean record where the athletics who were 15 to 20 games better than the Royals, but the Royals won. Mm-hmm. And in 2012, the Rangers who were 10 to 15 games better than the Orioles and the Orioles still won with Joe Saunders beating you <laughs> Darvish. Right, yes. So Irvin Santana beating Luis Severino wouldn't even be on that level. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, there's almost no outcome of 
a single game or for that matter, even a, a longer postseason series that would genuinely surprise me if the Twins end up sweeping the World Series or something. I would consider myself mildly surprised, but even then, not that surprised because, look, we just saw the Dodgers get swept in a four-game series by the Padres, right? That was weeks ago. So this sort of thing happens and we make a lot of it when it happens in October and maybe not so much if it happens in August, but every team has gone through a slump during the season at some point that is long enough to get knocked out of the playoffs. So it doesn't necessarily mean anything, which I guess leads into a larger discussion we wanted to have about playoff tactics and strategy and not specific to the wild card necessarily, but what makes a good playoff team if there is such a thing as a good playoff team, you know, relative to a team's regular season performance. And this is a, a subject that's really confounded analysts and statistically minded people for years now. There was a, a famous attempt by Nate Silver Nate Silver to identify a, a secret sauce that would help teams win in the playoffs at baseball prospectus. I don't know, about a decade ago that was since discontinued by BP because it didn't really prove to be predictive. And my thought on this has been in the past when I've tried to look for something, some factor that identifies a playoff winner, I've had a hard time finding anything, but I tend to think that maybe we just don't have a large enough sample with playoff baseball as it's played today. Because I think in the past, playoff baseball wasn't dramatically different from regular season baseball. But now because we have more off days in October and we have teams that seem more willing to ride their bullpens harder than they do during the regular season, I think we do maybe now see a team sort of construction that is set up to win in the playoffs, even if we can't look at it historically and say teams that have had this or that or have been constructed in such a, a way have done better in the playoffs. I think it's reasonable at least to speculate that maybe a team that has, say, a week back of the rotation, a week back of the bullpen, that hurts you during the regular season over 162 games. But when you get to the playoffs and you're concentrating your innings in the hands of, say, your three top starters and several of your best bullpen guys, we've seen team, some teams have a, a ton of success just riding those guys really hard, starting their aces on short rest or at least not using their fourth and fifth starters and then just going almost every game to their best relievers. That's something that teams did more often than ever last year. I wonder whether that will continue to be the case this year and whether that is reasonably a separator between teams. So I don't know where you guys stand, Michael. You have well, any it feels thoughts? obvious just looking at the Royals in 2014 and 15 in Cleveland last year. But at the same time, two of those teams lost the World Series to to teams mm -hmm. without really good bullpens. So it's you know, it, I think that that is true. Like the the kind of player who gets used less is the somebody's got to pitch this these innings guys. The the number four and five starters, yeah. the number six through thirteen relievers in this age of of enormous bullpens. So to a certain extent, I think sort of being top heavy at the in the rotation would kind of help you. But we've seen this happen to the Dodgers. We've seen this happen to the Tigers, where all of a sudden they get to the second round and the manager only trusts. Verlander or Kershaw and only trust Kenley Jansen uh, out of the bullpen. And so mm -hmm. those guys wind up pitching, you know, a ton of innings and wearing down even within the the context of of a short series. So the game definitely sets up with more off days like my my Yankees bullpen take for so many years wasn't necessarily the bullpen game in the wild card game. It was that they ought to cut down their rotation to two and a half guys and throw they're starting mm -hmm. pitchers for three innings on two days rest and then fill in the other six innings with their their six shutdown uh, relievers. And then you could still have a couple guys around for extra innings or matchups or mop up and still run a, a 14 uh, or a bench with 14 position players. So it's difficult because one, we don't have this. It's not like basketball or hockey where there are just so many playoff games that you can just generate a, a mm -hmm. meaningful sample, but also the tactics don't really change that much. You know, the pitchers tend to have a little bit of a shorter hook and closers will, will mm -hmm. come in for five out saves instead of three out saves. And apart from that, you know, I don't know that it's substantially difficult. It's not like you see in the NBA where if you have a guy who's, you know, key scorers in the regular season who just can't play defense well enough because they just get targeted every single time down the floor in, in playoff basketball. And, you know, you can't really do that in 
in baseball. I mean, I guess the closest we saw was Jason Hayward last year, but that's just, you know, Jason Hayward isn't hitting and you don't have time to, to sit around yeah. and, and wait for him to, to heat back up again. You know, I don't know if that's a matchup thing that uh, that you can really do. So I except for that one thing, I don't know how different tactics are that we can sort of mm-hmm. make broad sweeping conclusions about a team being built for the playoffs apart from, you know, sort of doing what the Dodgers did, which is making, you know, trying to get everybody to the postseason healthy by sort of lessening their workload throughout the season. That's really just making sure that that as many key players as possible are healthy is really the only way you can build for the playoffs. Because apart from that, just what works in the regular season, you know, more or less works for, for the playoffs as well. I do wonder in this postseason, I know a couple of years ago when the Royals had their back-to-back World Series appearances, the strategy sure was oh we have to get contact hitters in this era of rising strikeouts contact hitters make right. the world series i wonder if there will be some sort of uh, effect based on the home runs that mm-hmm. we've had this year but last year it wasn't like home runs were the story of the playoffs it was the bullpen so i wonder if in this uh crazy home run year of 2017 we will see something like that maybe a team will win a division series with like 80 percent of their runs coming from homers and for a week Everyone will be talking about, oh, this is how to win in the playoffs now. Or maybe it'll be the other way. The Astros are contact hitters now. And maybe if they advance, that'll be the new strategy. Uh, But like I said, and like we've been talking about, it's only one year. So who really knows how that'll Mm -hmm. impact? Yeah, you have like the the Red Sox, for instance, have, I think, the second lowest percentage of their runs scored on home runs during the regular season. So I could see, you know, they they heat up, they have a good series. Everyone decides that hitting home runs in the playoffs doesn't work. That's something we hear every single year. I I wrote something back when the Royals were winning about looking for a, a contact hitter advantage. And I did find that there might be one in that all else being equal, you might rather have a contact hitter against high-velocity pitchers who are more common in the playoffs. There does seem to be a slight advantage there, but that's all else being equal. That's if you have two hitters who are equally productive, but one is more of a strikeout guy and the other is more of a contact guy. And in real life, that is not often the case. Often the non-contact guy is just the better hitter. So all else is not equal and you still want the better hitter, even if the contact guy has some slight advantage this time of year. So I'm kind of with you there. And Zach, you're also working on something about this year's firemen, this year's Andrew Miller types in the playoffs. And obviously Andrew Miller is still Andrew Miller, but is there anyone we haven't talked about? Because that's going to be one of the dominant storylines this postseason, I think we can expect because it was last year. And I know that last year it was partly a response to the necessity. The Indians were shorthanded. They had to do what they did this year. They might have less of a need to because they have such a strong rotation and Trevor Bauer has not droned himself as of yet. So do you foresee anyone other than the very obvious candidates kind of occupying this role this this month and maybe seeing their usage increase, seeing them get a a higher percentage of their team's innings than they would over the long haul? I think the other team to watch besides the Indians Mm. is the Astros. Uh, AJ Hinch is probably up there with Terry Francona in terms of adopting sabermetric tactics for his team. And Houston is has kind of an interesting rotation setup where Verlander has been, you know, up there with Corey Kluber as the best pitcher in baseball in the second half. So he'll start game one and game five if they need him. Dallas Keuchel has sort of been iffy since returning from injury. And beyond that, Houston has a bunch of pitchers who are really good in shorter outings and not later in the game. Uh, Brad Peacock is probably going to start game three. And he has been maybe the best pitcher in baseball the first time through the batting order. And then has suffered at times through the order penalty by a really large margin once he reaches the middle innings. So Houston has a lot of pitchers, kind of like that Charlie Morton, uh, Lance McCullers, who knows uh, how much he'll be able to throw in the playoffs. So if Hinch sets up his rotation so that Verlander goes as long as he can, and then after that, it's sort of a free-for-all. He has the arms to pitch well in the middle inning, whether it's Chris who has 
kind of faded a bit in the second half, but still shown that he's one of the top relievers in baseball. Joe Musgrove, who's been dominant since moving from the rotation to the bullpen. Even Ken Giles can go multiple mm-hmm. innings if need be. I think we could end up with a lot of games where a Houston starter goes three to four innings, and then they have a mix of three to five guys. Because the interesting thing about Houston is it's not just Andrew Miller. They have Davinsky, they have Musgrove, they have all these other guys. So if Davinsky pitches... 40 pitches in game one, they'll still have guys who can go a lot of pitches in game two. Right. And I, and the reason the Miller thing worked so well last year was one, it's, it's Miller. But the other thing is they had Cody Allen, who was one of the top at, you know, one inning closers in baseball and having that traditional closer allows you a little bit more flexibility to get creative with the multi-inning guy or the fireman. And that's, you know, that's true with the Astros, with Giles and Davinsky. And, you know, Lance McCullers said that uh, the other night that he was open to sort of a multi-inning 2016 Andrew Miller-like role. And I think that, you know, we're seeing more and more as electrifying as, as he is and as up as he gets for big games as a starter, you know, maybe he just doesn't have the body to throw 200 innings and maybe that's where he ends up long-term. I will say that just going back to the conversation we were having about what the advantage is, the fireman is good. Like, I, I like this role. It's It's got obvious tactical utility, particularly if you have Davinsky and Giles or, or Miller and, and Allen. But like, I wonder if the great tactical innovation isn't the fireman or the multi-inning reliever. It's Andrew Miller is just really good. <laughs> or it's, you know, like you go back, uh, uh, you know, did, uh, the Giants, you know, do you just need one A starter? Do you need just Madison Bumgarner to have the best month of his mm-hmm. life or going back to or Cliff Lee and you know when he was that guy uh, back in the you know the the end of the the last decade so you know I wonder if you know, you see this in in hockey like every year there's one rookie goalie that catches fire and, and has a 930 save percentage and takes his team to the Stanley Cup final and it was like oh how do you find that next guy and I'm like I don't you know I just don't know that you can I think you're looking for one specific performance yeah. and I don't know like if every team could have an Andrew Miller, every team would have an Andrew Miller. Yeah, well, we've just spent 20 minutes poo-pooing the idea that there is some for some sort of formula to win in the playoffs. But if we had to pick a team that might be at an advantage or disadvantage relative to what we know about it based on the last six months, I'm wondering if there are any teams that stand out to you as being better constructed for playoff baseball or worse constructed for playoff baseball. And I would say probably, again, we're talking about marginal advantages at most here, but I would say the Yankees stand out to me as being built for the playoffs. Now, they have to get through this playoff play-in game. It might not matter at all if they just get shut down and lose this game. But if they go deeper into the playoffs, I think they're set up well in a few ways. I think they've had the best bullpen in baseball in the second half. And even though, as Zach documented, there's some shakiness there, there's still a really long list of effective relievers. We didn't even mention Aroldis Chapman before when we were just reeling off names. So there's that. They don't even need to do some kind of Terry Francona, Andrew Miller thing where they're bringing in people early and and pushing them. They have enough dominant relievers that they can just go one inning apiece from, say, the fifth inning on and just have a good option every time. And They'll have the freedom to go Severino, Gray, Tanaka and just sort of skip the back of the rotation or or use it sparingly. And I think they also have the most home run oriented offense of any playoff team. And again, I think that's an advantage. There is the perception that in the playoffs, you need to make things happen. You need to manufacture runs. You need to put the ball in play. I think that's the opposite of the case. I think that in the playoffs, you're facing aces you're facing the best defenses you're facing the best pitchers and if your offensive game plan is string three singles together to score a run you're going to have a tough time doing that in this environment whereas if you're hitting home runs that is not something that a good defense can protect against unless it's byron buxton and then maybe he can just go rob a home run every game but For the most part, I think if you are less reliant on stringing hits together, that favors you more in this environment. So the Yankees would be my pick for teams that would get the biggest boost from this format, although, again, not a huge one. Zach, is there any team that stands out to you either positively or negatively in that respect? 
this is kind of an answer to the question. I'm a little mm. worried about the Diamondbacks. I think they're if they advance past the Rockies and you know face the Dodgers in the first round, they have one big advantage, which is that a lot of their best hitters, from Paul Goldschmidt to JD Martinez, who can't stop hitting home runs, they're right-handed, and the Dodgers have a lot of left-handed pitchers. But there's Archie Bradley in the Diamondbacks bullpen, and the nobody mm. who can really be trusted. And while the Diamondbacks have a fantastic rotation. I think Michael wrote earlier this year they might be the best in baseball, talking about the importance of having good pitchers in the, the playoffs to throw in in the sixth inning of a close game or seventh inning with runners on base. I'm a little worried for what is going to happen to Archie Bradley's arm. And then beyond that, how the Diamondbacks might be able to match up with Kenley Jansen in a late inning, or even if they advance past the Dodgers, which they might because they played the Dodgers well this year, who might be able to face, like if they face a Bryce Harper or even a Cody Bellinger in the eighth inning, what lefty they trust to be able to get that guy out in a key situation. Yeah, I was actually going to say, I, I kind of like the Diamondbacks. If we're going off, you know, off the board a little bit, I think the teams that are best set up in terms of having depth, in terms of having multiple relievers, would probably be the Dodgers, Indians, and Astros, and those are the three best teams. So that's like, it's, you know, it sort of goes along with, the best way to to be good in the playoffs is to just be good overall. So taking that out of the out of the equation, I think the Diamondbacks are one of those teams where you can get to the seventh inning more often than not. And, you know, if they're worried about being too right-handed about Kenley Jansen, nobody's going to hit Kenley Jansen. If you get to Kenley Jansen, you're dead. And that's just, I mean, that's just not something, you know, it's just something that I almost wouldn't worry about. So I think the uh, the lineup, it matches up well against Kershaw and Hill, um, but Martinez and Goldschmidt will hit against anybody. I really like that Granky robbie Ray one-two punch, and I think that if you go five deep, you can move Zach Godley to the bullpen. Maybe he becomes the guy who who gets ground balls or, you know, whoever they, they run back out, out there, whether it's Godley or whether they move Pat Corbin down there. Maybe, you know, maybe Pat Corbin becomes the the guy you you bring in to get through the tough lefties in the Dodgers order. I just think their their starting pitching is so good and Bradley is so good that that sort of take care takes care of itself. Like we were saying, you don't need to get cute if you've just got a knockout pitching staff to begin with. And let me just say something about <laughs> Fernando Rodney. Fernando Rodney's not that bad. Like those of you listening at home, feel free to to cut this out. If he blows game, you know, if he blows the wild card game or if he blows game five of the division series, feel free to at me with this. Tori Lavallo is not stupid. And the the managers who have given him almost, you know, the opportunity to get like 300 saves in his, in his career are not stupid. He's like, it's when he blows up, he blows up big. But the thing is, a save opportunity is not that difficult to convert. You just need to essentially get more outs than you allow runs most of the time. And Rodney can do that. And that frees up Archie Bradley. You know, we're talking about the next Andrew Miller. I'm saying, you know, I was saying there might not be a next Andrew Miller. Bradley is like, as in terms of the top pick who has a size and the physicality to be a starter, but struggled with his command, you know, maybe struggled to, um, you know, to keep the ball in the zone, who can get, who sort of still brings that starters mentality, like very much more of a, a college closer than a major league baseball or a major league closer. You know, he can, I think he can hold up in the, in the way that Miller can in a way that very few other uh, uh, relief pitchers in baseball can throwing multiple innings at a time over the course of a, a postseason run. So, you know, this might be me sort of being a, a big fan of, of guys like Ray and Bradley, but I think the I think the Diamondbacks set up just fine. And for what it's you know for what it's worth, they took the season series from the Dodgers. So and they played them tough even when the even when the Dodgers uh, weren't losing to anybody. It's not just a, a matter of them just getting six games during that one in sixteen stretch. Uh, you know, so I think if we're going off the board a little bit and the Diamondbacks get out of the first wild card game, I think they're going to be a tough out. I think that if I were the the Dodgers, the difference between facing them and facing the Nationals, who I think are the second best team in the National League, yeah, you know, it wouldn't mm. be that great. It's also funny that you mentioned that because I don't think we've <laughs> talked about the Nationals or Cubs at all. I don't want to talk about the Cubs. <laughs> I talked about the Cubs so much last year. They'll, they'll get their moment in the podcast, <laughs> son. We have... Talk to me in 108 years, you know? Yeah, I mean... I was going to wrap up with this, which is if we had to talk about most intriguing stories, like if there's a team that 
you most want to see go on a run this month and get deep into the playoffs. And we don't have any rooting interests here. I'm not saying from a, a fandom perspective, but just in terms of how intriguing their story would be on a national level, the team that you most want to see playing that you most want to talk about this offseason or that has the most to gain from a World Series victory, however you want to determine that, whether it's longest time since the last victory or teams that have never won or teams that have just not been in the World Series for a really long time or teams with star players you want to see get the most attention on this stage, however you want to determine it. Are there any teams that stand out to you? I guess I can start with you, Michael. Just a team that you think could be the good Cinderella team of this October run, the way that the Cubs were last year. Um, well, I don't think the Cubs were Cinderella last well, year. I think that, I don't, yeah, I mean, I don't mean to say that they were. <laughs> one of the reasons that I'm so sick of talking about them is they're, oh, they're the lovable losers. No, they're a, you know, a big market yeah, juggernaut that right. just happened to, you know, happened to be bad before anybody wearing that yeah, uniform. I don't was mean born. underdog necessarily. So, so much is just most refreshing story. Yeah. Like, like mm-hmm. a narrative I'd like to see. I think from from the perspective of just seeing fun baseball, chalk would be great. Like if the if if we get that uh, Dodgers Nats uh, NLCS, we get the the Astros Indians ALCS. That those are four teams that I absolutely mm-hmm. love to watch. I'd like to see Kershaw get a ring just <laughs> yes. to shut everybody up. You know, I I'm just so sick of Kershaw can't perform in the playoffs. And like, it's just not it's not going to stop no matter how well he performs in the playoffs until Mm -hmm. they actually win a title. And so just for that, I think the Dodgers winning the World Series would be nice uh, to say nothing. If that's a sneaky, like as good as they've been pretty much nonstop since 1988, Mm -hmm. it's still been almost 30 years since they. They won a World Series, so you could, you know, say that they're due. The other thing that that I would like to see is it would be absolutely hilarious in this year of we've talked about the Dodgers as a super team, the, the Indians as a super team, the the Astros as a super team, and you know the the Red Sox and the Nationals have been um, have been just quietly very very good throughout the the course of the season. Like there are maybe as many as seven teams that you could make an argument could be the the best team in baseball mm-hmm. in any other season. So I think it would be hysterically funny if the Minnesota Twins just waltzed through this. <laughs> yeah, Zach, this is something you're writing about later in the week. I think that this is just the year of no playoff flukes, or at least among the division winners, these are really good teams. And I do like to see good teams play each other at the most important time of the year. But I'm kind of with Michael that just crazy randomness of the twins who have barely outscored their opponents would also be fun. Any teams stand out to you as the best from a storyline perspective? I'll follow Michael's lead and give one real example and one hilarious example. Uh, Uh I kind of would like Justin Verlander to carry the Astros Mm. for a while in part because I think it's always fun when teams even if they might not need to if they decide you know what we're going to go all in at the trade deadline or in Verlander's case the waiver deadline and maybe Verlander going on a run and winning something like four playoff games would lead more teams that like the Astros are really good to still try and add another piece I think first that gives us something to write about every summer which is nice but also it's just fun from sort of a mystical atmosphere perspective when a team decides, hey, we're going we're gonna to give our fans something uh, and not make the last two months of the season just about getting to the playoffs, but about trying to make our roster as optimal as possible once we get there. And it's so validating for a fan base of a team that's sort of on the rise. Like, the, like all people have talked about down here is the parallels to Randy Johnson in 98. You know, this was Cliff Lee a couple times. It was David Price a couple times. When the Cy Young winner moves at the at the deadline to a team that's sort of still kind of up and coming, it's it's just really, really cool to watch. Mm-hmm. It makes every start fun, and Verlander's sale in the first round is going to be electric. Yeah. Uh, but then my hilarious answer is, I think from the series, we haven't talked much about if Dusty Baker rides Max Scherzer and Steven Strasburg like he did Kerry Wood and Mark Pryor 15 years ago, mm. uh, and the Nationals get past the Cubs. I just think from a, a cosmic karma perspective, that would be really fun. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, there's almost no outcome here that I wouldn't enjoy. I think probably I wouldn't enjoy Yankees. Right, right Yankees, Red Yankees Sox, or Red Sox. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, you know, they've had more than enough of their moments. So I think it has been 13 years. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think that the Yankees are fun. I like this Yankees team. It's a, a little less hateable than most Yankees teams have been. But I think that obviously, you know, just in the interest of fairness of spreading the wealth around a little bit, I think probably you don't go with one of those teams. And there's probably some Cubs fatigue. I see the appeal in, say, the Cubs winning again, and then you start getting dynasty talk because this is still a, a young team that has high expectations going forward. So maybe just transforming the Cubs into that hated juggernaut. That There's something to that from a, a storytelling perspective, too. But Really, other than, say, those three teams, you could find something to love and root for with any of these other teams. So I'm I'm just I'm really excited about this playoff field. I think there's been a lull in baseball interest in the past few weeks just because it was a slow September. The crazy wildcard races we were hoping for didn't really materialize and there just wasn't a lot at stake in in the last couple of weeks but that was really the calm before the storm and i have high hopes for this postseason there are a lot of teams that i'm really looking forward to watching play each other and a lot of outcomes that would please a lot of fans i think so so it's going to be fun. Before you wrap up, I want to go back to Zach's thing about Verlander and, and the Astros. You brought it up like it was, and it is a serious thing, you know, and, you know, a good team that, that would have a cool narrative and so on. But you glossed over the fact that Verlander was, you know, bashing his head against the wall in the playoffs with the Tigers for a decade and how hilarious it would be if within two months of joining the Astros, he finally got that World Series ring. (laughs) Yeah, that's true, too. Yeah, that would uh, only add to Tigers fans' depression these days, but hey. No shortage of things to write about. So that's right. All right. Well, we hope that you will be following our writing and our podcasting at The Ringer throughout the month. We'll be in full-on playoff mode. You can find Zach on Twitter at Zach Cram. He'll be writing regularly, too. And we will reconvene. going to the Dodgers games, right? Yeah, that's right. Yes. And I will be at Yankees games. I'll be at the the wildcard game tomorrow. So I'm looking forward to that, too. And uh, we'll reconvene presumably on Thursday to talk about what happened in those wildcard games and maybe a, a bit more of an in-depth preview of the division series. I forgot to to put together predictions. Yes. So please. I'll do that for Wednesday. Yeah. Give us prop bets or something. At least that's my, my preferred way to do predictions. So Zach, thank you. Sorry. It took us so long to get you on here, but we're happy that we did. Thank you so much. Well, you've been listening to the ringer MLB show, part of the ringer podcast network. We will talk to you all on Thursday. Hey, it's Bill Simmons. Wanted to make sure you subscribe to The Watch with Andy Greenwald and Chris Ryan. Two longtime friends who have had this podcast since 1973. Yeah, that's how long. It was even before podcasts they were having this. These guys spent their whole life arguing with each other. And now we just record it and they go at it. They talk about everything pop culture. It is one of the most popular pop culture podcasts, especially valuable during Game of Thrones season. But uh, they'll argue about movies, music, TV, you name it. The Watch, one of the best pop culture podcasts on the internets. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts.